after the gig, we um, we went back to the hotel. There was me, Jim, Mark, and I think there was two other girls that were there. So it was five of us, literally. From about one o'clock, the band started to arrive very separately and uh, probably about 15-minute intervals apart, you know, so Clarence would come in first, John Lando would follow, Roy, Danny, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until about 3 a.m. that Bruce shuffled in, <laughs> looking as though he'd just gone about um, six hours on stage. <laughs> he walked up to us and we said hi. He was very polite. Uh, first thing that struck me, two things. One was he was a little bit smaller than I thought he was going to be. Um, and secondly, I remember the sideburns looked even bigger in real life than they did on stage during the River Tour. And welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your, bodca- your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. I just told my guest that um, I don't do edits, so now I'm going to have to leave my misspeaking in. Um, I have a, a guy that I've already been spending a few minutes with, and I am already uh, think we can be BFS forever. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey Jesse, how you doing? I am great. So Jeff, tell us, tell my listeners a little bit about yourself. Okay, um, I was born in Liverpool, which I think most of your listeners might have heard of for a couple of reasons. Um, I'm 59 years old. I'm married to Julie. We have five children between us, and I'm living in a place called Yorkshire, in England, which is in the north of England. And uh, I've been a Bruce fan probably uh, 41 years. But that's open for debate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, um, I, I promised Jeff that we would get on tangents. Um, so I'm going to know why, why is there a debate on when your fandom started? Because I'm trying to um, – I'm a stickler for dates, Jesse, okay. and uh, numbers. And I remember the distinct moment that I was introduced through to the music Bruce Springsteen. And I'm, for the life of me, trying to pinpoint the exact year and date. Okay. And I'm going to plump in the middle and say 1979. Okay. Uh, I remember the moment, and I, 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 we can talk about that, but yeah, I, I, I'm going to go for 1979. So um, the reason I ask is um, back a few years ago, the last time I, see, I saw the band live, um, I was lucky enough to see Bruce on Broadway once, but uh, the last live show was um, in uh, at MetLife. Um, you know, he did three shows all toward the end of the second half of the River Tour, uh-huh. and it was the second night there, and yeah. there was all this um, a lot of angst about did we did we go up the wrong night? Because that first night he had done, he opened with Incident and with Strings, and we're like, holy crap did we pick the oh, wrong night and yeah. and it ended up being great but there was debate on was this at the time the longest american show okay and i got down the rabbit hole of when do you start the clock 
<laughs> like when when um, let's say um, you know Niels or whoever is the first person out of the tunnel hits the stage, is that when you stop the start stopwatch? Is it when <laughs> Bruce walks on stage hits the stoplight? Is it when he says good evening or hello? Or is it the first song play, right? I think it's when they hit the first note, surely. Yeah, and, and so and and the argument was that because if we're talking official, right, a lot of older shows we only have audio. We don't have video, so the only way you could time it would be the first, you know, the song. And and it's we're talking matters of seconds. Um, yeah. And I was um, I was fascinated that because I I'm I'm the other kind of guy, uh, Jeff. I um, like when I balance my checkbook. Back when we used to balance a checkbook, back when you used to carry a checkbook. Now then, you know, it's all on your app. I'd go, eh. Like my mom would spend hours looking to find where she missed the six cents that she's off. I'm like, ah, oh, it's within ten bucks. Let's put the new balance in and move on, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean, and I think if you look at the most historic show, um, certainly in Europe, the Helsinki show, uh, which clocked in, I can't remember. Dan will tell you the exact uh, right. timing: four hours and thirteen minutes, whatever. And then the aficionados will say, and don't forget, he did a preset as well. He actually came out and did three or four songs before yes. as well. So you might as well whack that on top as well. <laughs> so. Yeah, and you know, and I love the story of that. Um, yeah. You know, supposedly, and um, that they were playing, and they realized just by circumstances they had gone long. And yeah. Supposedly, they kind of talked to each other between, like, "Hey, you want to keep going? Do we want to try yeah. to set a record?" And, yeah. Um, I don't know if that's true, but I want it to be true. Yeah. I think the other thing, Jesse, I, just telling that story now reminds me of listening to the New Year's Eve 1980 gig at Nassau Coliseum. Mm -hmm. And uh, there must be about an hour and 40 to go before midnight. And Bruce says, we, we can't just stand around on stage. And Steve, I think, I think that's Stevie or Bruce, one of them calls out for held up without a gun. And they kind of thrash that way through right up to midnight and bang, go the fireworks after that. So it's um, it's interesting how you can manage a set list and fill up the time <laughs> unnecessarily or necessarily so yeah, yeah i call bs a little bit because when they interview often when they do interviews they will say we have a set list and by the first song it's out the window yeah and um and i say that's a little bs because if you if they're doing i don't know working on the dream magic wrecking ball a tour Right. They tend to um, they tend to have the first three or four songs early in the tour, the same songs. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, OK, we're going to open um, with We Take Care of Our Own or we're going to, you know, there and there is. So what I tend to tell someone new is that um, 50 to 60 percent of the set list most nights is the same. It's the other. 40 to 50 percent that changes it may be in different orders but when he's touring 
there is a core base. So uh, we've already gotten off on topic, and I knew we would. Jeff, talk about growing up. You said you grew up in Liverpool. Um, was your family musical? Did you guys listen to a lot of music? What kind of music did y'all listen to? Yeah, that's that's a really good question because um, one of the biggest frustrations I had is that my parents had absolutely awful music taste. And um, I actually thought about this only this morning, actually, and I wrote down the first three artists that I remember my parents playing. And bear in mind that when I was a 10, 12, 14-year-old, I am younger than I am myself today. And the groups that I wrote down were ABBA, The Carpenters, and the James Last Orchestra. So I was surrounded uh, in a house by music that I totally could not relate to at all. It just wasn't fashionable. It didn't relate to me. And here I was as a kid growing up in Liverpool were the Beatles, you know, yeah. obviously, as, as you know. Um, so within the house itself, the four walls of the house, there was absolutely zero musical influence coming from within the four walls of the house. So... Every little bit of um, musical influence I picked up either came from the TV, and I don't know if you've heard of a show in, in the UK called Top of the Pops. It yes, effectively, yes I'm, yeah. I'm aware of it, and other guests have talked about it. Okay, so my, uh, my Elvis or Beatles moment, if you like, was seeing Mark Bolan and T-Rex on Top of the Pops around 71, I guess, when I was 10 years old. And I can't remember what song they were playing, but I thought, wow. This is different. I like it. And effectively, for probably the next two years, I got sucked up into the, the T-Rex and glam rock world, as a 12, 13, 14-year-old would probably do at that time. And then I probably think after that, my musical taste started to get slightly more sophisticated. Um, so as a 14-year-old, I went to see my first concert. It was at the Liverpool Empire, and that was to see Queen. And it was probably about a month before Bohemian Rhapsody was released. So they'd had Killer Queen and Seven Seas of Rye as kind of hits as such. They weren't mega then, obviously. Um, it was just before the wave hit, I guess, with Queen. Sure. Um, but what I remember at school, Jesse, was that most of my peers and my pals, 14, 15-year-old lads, they were listening to prog rock. They were listening to groups like Yes and... Genesis and uh, Rush was a big group. I, I know that uh, a lot of my pals liked uh, Rush. And I again, I couldn't relate to this music either. So there was one lad in our class, and I remember his name being Robert Green. And there's two things that struck me about Robert Green. One is he looked like Bob Dylan, and he loved Bob Dylan. Okay. <laughs> so I kind of sided with him a little bit. So when Everybody, all my, all my school pals were talking about music and yes and Genesis and blah, blah, blah. I kind of just talked to Robert about Bob Dylan and just said, OK, recommend an album. What songs do you like? Can you make me a tape? All that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I remember hooking up with him and uh, that was really quite interesting. And I do remember conversation around 75, 76 about Born to Run. And bear in mind, I was 14, and you, you know the story about um, Bruce and the 75 tour and coming yes. to Hammersmith Odeon. Um, I just wish I knew more about it, because at that time, what I was hearing was I was getting Bruce Springsteen mixed up with Rick Springfield, Born to Run mixed up with Born to be Wild, yes. and it was a blur to me. It was just a blur. And then 
by 77, the punk explosion happened, uh, certainly here in the UK, late 76, early 77. And I remember, the, again, the first moment when I was aware of punk and I was delivering newspapers as a 15, 16 year old. And I picked up the newspaper one morning, Sunday morning, and the Ferrari was all about God Save the Queen, the Sex Pistols song. Right. And how do, how dare they? And as a young lad, I thought, OK, this is interesting. I want to learn a little bit more about this. And the rest with punk is history. You know, for the next two or three years, it was pretty full on. You know, it's it's that's interesting. I, I talked to a um, a guy yesterday that's going to come out shortly. Um, Elliot Foskett. He's um, he's there in the UK as well, and he he did an isolation song that kind of got, as he said, you hate to use the word viral now, but it did go worldwide and and. Uh, we talked to him. I talked to him yesterday, and he was talk, he grew the same thing about that that punk movement, and it was became it was everything at that 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 energy and that that excitement of that. Um, so I do have to go back. Uh, as an adult, do you have a little more appreciation for the Carpenters and uh, Abba? <laughs> no. Okay. Fair enough. Well. Um... I can I, I can I can appreciate the pleasantness of it, and I think Karen Carpenter had a wonderful voice. Um, yes, but I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I, I won't. Uh, you know, I have shared many times on the podcast. I am a child of the '70s and of of pop radio. You know, I I was yeah. born in '59. I graduated high school in '77. Um, grew up in a family of all um, country and western. You know, music was the region was the prevailing, you know, music in our household. And um, so obviously I have a huge sentimental of, you know, 70s pop of, you know, of of the Carpenters and that lush sound. Um, And but of course, Queen and Elton John and uh, all Foghat and all these, you know, 40 bands. So Mm. um Yes, um, it is funny that when you think about um, we've only just begun started as a bank commercial, uh, there there is something about that. Um, Did – do you – you said you clearly remember how you discovered Bruce. So so you've gone through high school. um, You've gone through your punk phase. You've really involved – become a, a fan of a lot of music tell me the story of of that moment whether it be 78 or 79 whatever month where you discovered bruce yeah my um once i'd left i left school at 16 and um from the age of 16 from 77 onwards i kind of buddied up with a good pal of mine called mark uh who i'm still friends with to this day and he was the guy who uh after a night at the bar, we would go back to his house, spin a few vinyls, and he would always say, listen to this. What do you think to this? Shall we play that? He was my influencer. He was my musical influencer, I guess. And I do remember he's, he pulled out Dance on the Edge of Town on vinyl and said, uh, there, take the headphones, listen to this, I'll make you a drink. And I remember distinctly having very mixed opinions of it. And bear in mind that I was coming 
out of the, the raw punk era. For me, I, I love The Clash, The Ramones, Elvis Costello. And to hear the contrast of Darkness on the Edge of Town against that backdrop of music I was used to, I couldn't relate to it. And I remember distinctly disliking two songs, Adam Raised a Cane and Factory. Um, the other songs, I like Prove It All Night, I like Badlands, Racing in the Street was beautiful. But I handed it back and I said to him after the 43 minutes or whatever, I said, um, yeah, it's OK. I, I, I don't think I could get into to this chap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 41 years later, here I am talking to you about that chap. Yes. <laughs> um, um. So in 79, it, it kind of got parked a little. And then for me, what changed everything was in 1980 on a musical program called the Ogre Whistle Test, which you may have heard of. They had uh, footage of Bruce playing Rosalita at Phoenix, 78. Yeah. Um, the famous footage where he gets mobbed on stage. Um, the No Nukes film um, was released at some point. I can't remember the exact date, but again, seeing the three songs, I think, that were heard from No Nukes was a real appetizer for what was about to come. Now, the River album for me, I could relate to completely. By this time, I was not 17, I was 19. The punk phase had passed. And at 19, to hear a double album, mostly about cars and girls, it grabbed me straight away. You know, yeah. the imagery, the lyrics. I love the songs, and there's three or four songs that absolutely stand out for me on that album. And, of course, the tour happened pretty quickly. You know, we all know he kicked off in October 1980, he was due to come across early 81. It got pushed back a little bit in the UK in early 81. But I was there. I was buying the tickets for the River Tour. And um, that's where it really, really kicked off for me, seeing him live. You know, I, I've said that many times, um, that when, you know, there's two kinds of people. Um, Jeff, there's the people that go to their first Bruce show and go, wow, that was long. And then the others that go, oh, my goodness, uh, what, where has this been? And I want to do everything I can to see him anytime I can. Um, yeah. And it, it, is, it is interesting, but certainly not unique, that so many people share that um, – version of your story that it was good i liked it and then when i saw him live i went wow wow I, I, we were lucky as well because um we went to the manchester apollo mm -hmm. i think it holds about two thousand people we were on row g you know really up close and row g is effectively being inside the pit isn't it i mean yeah <laughs> front of the pit um and I remember in those days, because there's no video screens, you were actually seeing facial expressions. Sure. Five or six songs in, he started with the river. And I just remember the sweat dripping down his arm, the facial expressions, the tightness of the band. And I thought, OK, we've had the initial blast of Badlands and Prove It All Night and Out the Street, etc., etc. But when it, he brought it right back down to, to a level for the first time, that, I would say, half an hour in is what really grabbed me, you know, when he just brought it down. And it was the appreciation time. And um, I, I don't know how long that gig was that night. It was the 14th of May, 1981. And within four or five days, I was at my second concert. And then another week after that, I was at my third concert. 
And we actually got to meet Bruce um, after that third concert. Um, oh, tell me in Birmingham. that story. Yeah, so uh, I only saw him three times on that tour. Um, so we, we saw him in Manchester. We saw him at a place called Stafford Bingley Hall, which is an old cow shed. And then Birmingham NEC, he played two nights, the 7th and 8th of June, 1981. And we went to the first one. So a few things stood out. <laughs> um, we were determined by this time, we, let's, let's, let's try and meet Bruce. This was me, my friend Mark that I mentioned, and another friend called Jim. Um, and we said, OK, let's try and find out where, where he's staying. And we managed to find out that he was staying at the Holiday Inn in um, Birmingham near the NEC. And uh, we quickly found out he was staying there because we, we saw all the, the crew T-shirts, you know, the, the River Album T-shirts, Bruce Springsteen. And we went up to one of the roadies and said, is Bruce staying here? And he went, Bruce who? <laughs> <laughs> he, he, was, he was wearing the T-shirt. <laughs> and he actually said something like, oh, you mean loose windscreen? And it's a joke to this day that we use 40 years on, you know, who's loose windscreen? Yeah. Um, so we kind of banked that and we thought, OK, let's just get off to the gig. After the gig, we um, we went back to the hotel. There was me, Jim, Mark, and I think there was two other girls that were there. So it was five of us, literally. And from about one o'clock, the band started to arrive very separately and uh, probably about 15-minute intervals apart. You know, so Clarence would come in first, John Lando would follow, Roy, Danny, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until about 3 a.m. that Bruce shuffled in, <laughs> looking as though he'd just gone about... Um, six hours on stage <laughs> and um he walked up to us and we said hi he was very polite uh first thing that struck me two things one was he was a little bit smaller than i thought he was going to be um and secondly i remember the sideburns looked even bigger in real life than they did on stage during the river tour you remember how those sideburns just got bigger, sure, and bigger, yeah. And bigger. yeah yeah so we had probably i guess I might be corrected by the, by this, but it felt like 10 to 15 minutes of really nice, pleasant conversation. Thanks for the music. Great concert. I remember um, talking about Drive All Night, played Drive All Night that night, which was quite a rarity in those days. Um, and I luckily had my copy of Born to Run with me on vinyl, which Clarence and John Lando had already signed uh, a couple of hours earlier. And I remember getting this scratchy little ballpoint pen out and saying to Bruce very stupidly oh there's a pen can you just sign between where it says Bruce Springsteen and Born to Run and he, he didn't even look at me he bought out this great big blue marker pen and he just scrawled all over the front Bruce Springsteen oh how fun <laughs> so that um, that signed album is in a frame and that is very very special to me so we, we had 10-15 minutes with him as I say and we talked about a few things and we ended the conversation. We said, well, you must be really tired. We're going to get off. We've, we've got to drive. And um, as we started walking off, we heard some footsteps behind us, like a, a slow run. And we heard, hey, guys. I thought, oh, security, they're going to chase us off the premises, you know, just leave quietly and move sure. along. It was Bruce. It was Bruce. And he came trotting towards us and said, you guys say you're driving back to Liverpool now? We said, yeah. He said, it's late. You've had a long day. Just take it easy driving back. Oh, and that just obviously cemented everything for us. It was it was unbelievable. I actually I have a little bit of mistiness on that. Um, you know, 
Yeah, yeah, it was it was very special, and yeah. um, and to this day, you know, Jesse, I, I kind of um, possibly had a few opportunities where I could have met him again, and I, I don't want to. I, I kind of feel as though that was my one special meeting, and unless he's going to come around my house for dinner. No, it's fine. I'll leave it. Thank you. I'll just I'll leave it as that one time. <laughs> you know, I can understand that. Um, yeah. It was. Uh, I'm debating. I'm going to tell the story and 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 I will change the names to protect the innocent. Um, yeah. You know, there's that game where you say, you know, name three to five people you would want to have dinner with. Right. Yeah. yeah. We could be living or deceased. And um, there was I always named a certain writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he has written uh, for a lot of animation. He's written for a lot of comics um, and he has this amazing blog that I found. I, I, I read routinely. And um, and he was even nice enough. I emailed him the first time I was going to go to New York, and he sent back this wonderful email about, hey, you know, since you're going to go, um, if you can afford it, Peter Luger's has the best steak I've ever eaten in my life. Um, <laughs> you know, if you're gonna, if you don't have any specific Broadway show you want to go, go to TKTS. They were Broadway Square. They will sell you discounted tickets for that day's shows. You can pick up – you could see some really good shows. He was just filled with great information. Yeah. So um, at a convention because of a friend, my friend Tom Zoller, um, we were in a convention, and we ended up going to dinner with a bunch of people, including this writer. Okay. And in person, he was so shy. And so stiff, like when you talk to him, he – it wasn't that he was rude. It's just he was incredibly you, – you had to pull things out of him, it, you really? know. And, and, and I was like, you know, I'm not sad I met my one of my heroes because he was very pleasant to me and he was nice. But it blew the illusion that I pictured, you know, at dinner – we would just be filled with these wonderful, you know, stories and sharing, and and he wasn't. Um, so I get your point of, you know, you have this beautiful memory of Bruce, and and what a way, you know, you have the fifteen minutes warm discussion, and then to have him end with him taking time to i guess the only thing better would have said hey we have a couple extra hotel rooms why don't y'all just spend the night and we'll have breakfast in the morning i mean but but next to that going hey y'all be careful driving home um that's that's a beautiful story and actually knowing the distance in mileage and i know in america like 100 miles is nothing but in the UK, in this small country, you know, it, it's a big drive. And when you have had that long day and you've been awake, I don't know, 16, 20 hours, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. But he, he appreciated that. And it, it was really special. And, and in my line of work, I have a saying that says it's not necessarily what you say. It's how you make the person feel that's important. Yes. And that's exactly everything. You know, so that day I 
literally got to see probably one of my best Bruce moments, which was Drive All Night in 81, performed with the girl next to me, absolutely crying her eyes out. And the whole, I don't know how many people were there that night, eight and a half thousand, I think it might have been, absolutely spellbound for that 10 minutes that he played that song. I just remember the whole place, you could hear a pin drop. It was unbelievable. And I don't tend to gauge Springsteen concerts by my favourite concert. I, I tend to gauge them by moments within the concerts. And that was ultra special, cemented by the meeting at the end of the night as well. Yeah, I, I can imagine. That, that yeah. is awesome. Well, yeah. I always like to preface this question, uh, Jeff, with the parameter, with the the caveat that I don't believe the amount of times you've seen Bruce perform live is a fair barometer of how big of a fan you are. I think there are circumstances where you live, your age, your economic situation, all of that drives how many shows you may have seen. Um, and, and by the way, that just came up with someone I was going to interview. Um, he brought up before we hit record, um, you know, I've, I've not seen Bruce that many times. Am I going to, is that going to be weird for your audience? And, and I said, you know, I have had people that have never seen him perform live that have been amazing guests are fascinated by his music. So not at all. But for the record, do you have, with someone who loves numbers as much as you, you must have a, how many times you've seen him? I'm going to disappoint you now. I know approximately, but I don't know okay, exactly. wow, okay. And <laughs> I think it's 80-ish. Okay. 80, 80-odd. And I can't, one day I'll work it out, I'm sure, but... Um, one thing I will say, uh, Jesse, is that probably out of those 80, I would say that probably half of them were probably done in the first 10 years and the other half of the next 30 years. I, I think my um, enthusiasm, the fact that I was a single young man for the first 10 years, yeah. allowed me to go out. And I was lucky enough to go out to the States in 84 before he came back to Europe for the Morning USA tour and... Uh, there's an interesting story about my trip to the Netherlands in 84 as well, which, uh, but it, it, it's 80 odd. It's 80 okay, odd. That's good. really what I can say. So, um, I, I, I'm sure you're aware of the, my boss time website. Yes. And yes. so, uh, yeah, that, that helps me keep count because okay. <laughs> it's like it counts for me. Um, that is great. Um, well, let's go ahead. You, you teased it. Talk to me about the 84 trip. Okay, so in uh, as you know, I, I ran a, a fanzine called Rendezvous. Yes. And uh, I started this in 83. Um, so after Nebraska, I kind of decided, you know what, there's some fanzines out there. You know, Dan does Point Blank. There's Gary Desmond was doing Candy's Room. And I thought, is there room to do another one? And I, I remember seeking permission from Gary and Dan at the time saying, look, you've got no objection, have you, if I step in and just do another one? I just feel like I, I want to do it for myself, really, more than anything. Um, and Dan, polite as ever, said, yeah, fine, no objections with me. <laughs> and I did it. And when you start kind of um, doing a fanzine, you, you start to collate names and addresses, mostly from overseas. And you get the – what we, you remember the days we used to have pen pals? You didn't have Facebook connections, you had pen pals. So I, I, I think I told this story when Dan was on, and for someone who hasn't heard it, 
Um, I was part of a a Teen Titan fanzine. Okay. Um, you know, for the the DC comic book um, uh, series and group. Yeah. And um, I remember we were a fanzine, um, and um, you would write um, fan fiction or you know critiques of the previous person's fiction, and you would make forty-five copies. You would send it to a central mailer. The central okay. mailer would take those forty-five copies everyone sent, put them together, and then would put together a binder. And then would mail that out. And so you got to be friends with people, uh, mostly U.S., but there were certainly um, overseas, you know, comic book fans have gotten to be fan friends. And um, and I was part of the Beach Boys Fans United, oh, wow. um, which was a, the same thing, a Beach Boy fanzine that mm. someone did out of labor of love. Okay. Um, so, yes, so I am aware of that. And you do... Um, similar to online now, you get to be friends with people via Facebook or Twitter or blogs, right? Back yeah. then it was, but it was actually through, as we say now, snail mail, right? That's right. That's right. So we, we would get, um, you know, I always used to say, just send, it was 50 pence for a fanzine and you had to put a stamped address envelope in. Uh, but I, I can't recollect how many people were coming from different countries, but I do remember the U.S. We had quite a strong following, uh, Scandinavia, Sweden, especially. We made friends and connections with different people. So leading on to the Meadowlands story, I, I was following quite closely Bruce's movements around the Stone Pony with Cats on the Smooth Surface in 82, 83, Beaver Brown, John Eddy, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, OK, things are gearing up here. And I remember having a conversation with a girl from New York City who said, look, um, if Bruce ever plays in Europe, can you help me with tickets? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll try. And I said, and if I come across to the U.S., can you help me? She said, yeah, sure. And as the tour dropped in, uh, it kicked off, I think it was June, wasn't it, 84. Um, I saw he was playing a 10-night stand at Meadowlands, the Brendan Byrne Arena. You probably remember it. And... Um, I thought, okay, I can make this work. I can get flights out to uh, JFK. I can go over. And she said to me, I'll get you tickets. What do you want? And I said, first seven nights would be brilliant. Not all ten, but the first seven. She said, yeah, done. Don't worry. It's, it's, it's because you just weren't going to be greedy, or you figured that's all you could afford to stay that long? Um, it was more to do with my holidays. I, I worked for a bank at the time, and I just worked out that seven concerts with flights and days in between it was two weeks holiday i think if i remember rightly so i went across flew in um i won't mention the name of the person um but um she picked me up and she said um i've got bad news for you and i said what is it she said um the guy that was getting me the tickets his name was mark um i don't mind mentioning his name because nobody will know him he said um unfortunately he sold your tickets to a scalper i went oh oh no so here I am in New York City. The first concert was, I think, the next night or a couple of nights after. I had absolutely no tickets for my two-week stay. So I like to think I'm a quite a resourceful chap. And I thought, right, OK, I had some copies of my Rendezvous fanzine with me. And I effectively went into Manhattan the next day. 
I knocked on the door of John Mondo Management, or wherever they were at the time, or whatever they called themselves, and I, I walked in, and I got speaking to Barbara Carr and uh, her assistant. I said, look, um, this is a, a mission of mercy. This is who I am, proudly grasping my, my uh, rendezvous issue two. <laughs> Here, have a copy. <laughs> and I said, um, but here's my, here's my dilemma. I had tickets. They were promised to me. They were sold to a scalper. I'm stranded. Can you do anything for me? I'll pay for the tickets. I don't want anything free. She said, yeah, sure. Just each night at the concert, just go to the box office Give your name in, and there should be, I can't promise, but there should be one ticket for you for each night that you want. You have to pay your $20 or whatever, how much they were at the time. And sure enough, uh, for six of the seven nights, I had tickets left me by Bruce's management team. And uh, I just remember those concerts with enormous um, joy because every single night was different. Each ticket I had each night was different parts of the arena. You know, I even had tickets second row behind stage one night. And um, it was my first experience of U.S. concert culture. You know, the uh, the parties in the parking lot beforehand, everybody okay. throwing the balls around and the, uh, the barbecues going. Yeah. And it's the first time I saw a Mexican wave as well inside the arena that night. <laughs> oh, how funny. Yeah, back in 84. So, um, yeah, that was uh, quite an experience. So, as I say, I, I had tickets for six out of the seven. And on the seventh night, um, the, the girl I was staying with went into the concert without me. Third song in, came running out, said, I've got your ticket. So I went in on the, on the seventh night as well. Oh, and nice. So, so most of it, yeah. So it all ended well, but it could have gone completely the other way. <laughs> I... Um... That is an awesome story. I could see, like, oh my goodness, what what are we gonna do? Um, that that is crazy. Um, the you've already talked a little bit about the fanzine, but why did you decide to do one? And what were you? Is it just out of fandom? You just wanted to be involved? Why did you decide to do it? Um, yeah, I think it was fandom. I think there was room to to put another one out there. At the time, there was four. There was there was Point Blank, Candy's Room, The Fever, run by Dave Percival and uh, Jackson Cage by Paul Limbrick. And I just decided that if if you're a fan, you wouldn't just buy one fanzine. You'd probably buy three or four, or you'd buy them all. They're fifty pence. They're full of information. They tended to come out every three or four months anyway. So sometimes if you dropped one in at a certain time. So, for example, I, I think back in late 83, I started to drop in about the rumors about the Born in the USA album. And if you ever see copies of Rendezvous issue one and two, it does talk about the album. Um, but I also try to make it a bit of fun. I try to um, make it lighthearted as well. Um at the same time and it was never for the money it was just really cover the costs sure. and um in those days it was typewriters letter sets um photocopying and i remember going to my workplace of work and i used to sneak in i'll just try and photocopy another 10 copies and yeah the staples on my desk yeah fine that's great that's another five pound worth of copies done <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and it, it, it was just great time. But I think the biggest thing coming out of it, Jesse, was that it opened up a world of community, you know, in terms of people from around the world connecting with each other at a time that you couldn't really connect with other people around the world. You know, you could only do that through the Springsteen and the fanzine community that, um, as you know, has existed for, gosh, 40, 50 years. Yeah. Um, how long... How many different countries have you seen him perform in? Again, I can't precisely say, okay. but it'll probably be no more than 10, I would say. Okay. Um, we've been around Europe quite a lot, you know, France, yeah. Spain, Ireland, UK. Been to the States a couple of times at least. I was there mm-hmm. in 2016 for the River Tour at yeah. Harford. Um, just to see the, I just wanted to see the River album in full in its entirety thinking by the yeah. time he came to the UK, he wouldn't do it that way. So and you were right. Um, a- no, he dropped it in a couple of times. I know we went to Paris in 2016 to the Bercy Arena and we saw a most unbelievable gig that night. Um, he opened up with Instant on 57th Street, just on the piano, solo. Um, and he started going through side one of the river, side two. We thought, oh, he's going to play the whole lot here. And he stopped around about... 10 songs in and just diversified the set list. Um, but we also got reason to believe that night full band version, which was fantastic. And again, when I talk about special moments, I, I can again, just randomly pull out very, very special moments from around the world. Um, Montpellier in 2012, we went to a very small arena Again, holding about eight, ten thousand people, maybe. I think it was only one of two arena gigs he did on that leg of the tour. He did Finland, Turku, and he did Montpellier, and he did Point Blank and the River back to back in a small arena in 2012. And I thought, wow. I know I've seen those songs performed before, but in this day and age, in 2012, to see it done back to back in a small crowd, it was fantastic. So. Um, yeah, I've, I've a lot of fun memories um, seeing him around the world, and yeah. I still would like to see him in Italy. I've not seen him in Italy yet. Okay. So this, so that would be one of my dreams, I guess. All right. Um, what were your thoughts on um, Western Stars? Loved it. I really loved it. Um, I actually went through a uh, an exercise. I was on a plane trip uh, not long after the album got released, and I started to rank all the albums and. Uh, Western Stars, I think at the time, squeaked into the top 10. Yeah. Um, out of 28 releases, I think it was. And the more and more I listen to it, especially when you hold it up against the live version as well from the film, the film soundtrack, yeah. you s- still pick out different nuances in the record. And it's an album that grows on me each time. Yeah. And uh, for the life of me, I always think, why did he sit on this for, gosh, Eight years or so. Yeah, some of the material. Well, and <laughs> go ahead. I was going to say I, I read somewhere that there's gosh about another thirty songs from those sessions that may be unreleased and could come out one day. Maybe I don't know. But um, that'd well, be that'd be something to look forward to. It is. It was so beautiful, and I've been very vocal um, with with everything that's going on with so many people at home. And they can't leave or should not leave. Um, yeah. I've been 
you know, saying that um, Blinded by the Light, Western Stars is a great double feature night that you should, um, you know, make some popcorn or fix your favorite comfort food and, and have that double feature. Um, yeah. To have a Springsteen themed night, it's 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 great to watch the live uh, concerts and it's amazing. But as far as two films, kind of binding together, I think that's a really nice. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, 2019 was a was an amazing year for not just Bruce but for all the E Street Band members. Yeah. Um, so many good music and, and such excitement on there. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And, and I think in these strange times where half the world seems in lockdown, uh, the good thing is a lot of people are actually listening to new music at the moment. And I have a local record store here in Yorkshire that I go to. And the owner, who I get on very, very well with, is into strange music like hip hop, which is certainly not my cup of tea. But he put something on uh, social media about a week ago and said, in these strange times, I'm starting to discover Bruce Springsteen. Oh, <laughs> and he nice. knows. And he knows I'm his kind of like number one Springsteen fan. And he always says to me, I've got something coming up for you. You'll like this. And he's he's always trying to sell me stuff, anything Springsteen related. That's... And he said to me, yeah, and he, he just said to me, he said, what's your favorite? What, what what do you think I should listen to first? I said, I would just go the first five, five or six albums. Go up to Nebraska. Go 73 yeah. to 82. You can't go far wrong. Yeah, that's 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 hilarious. That that's really fun. Um, the um, you've kind of talked about you'd love to do um, to see a show in Italy. Um, are there songs though that you've not heard him do live that you would like to hear? Yeah, I've got some quite predictable ones actually. When we talked earlier on about the River Tour. Uh, 2016 and if you remember rightly he kind of started off doing the the album in its entirety which I'm glad I saw in Hartford Mm -hmm. but as the tour matured later on I kind of missed out on things like I've never seen Prove It All Night 78 version I never got to see New York City Serenade with the strings and I never have seen instant uh, full band version I've seen him do it solo on the piano two or three times yeah um, so those three songs were kind of banded around quite a few times and played quite a few times the later gigs of that tour. And I was quite sad that I missed those three. But if you were to pin me down, I'm going to throw a real curveball and say, do you know what? Here's one song that he's never played live. I'd love to hear one day. Stray Bullet. Oh, OK. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Love to hear that. But mm-hmm. let's see. Let's see if he ever pulls that one out the bag. Okay, good. Um, you know, we had all thought that we would get a tour in 2020, or at least we were all hoping. I, I don't think that's happening now, though there is rumor on uh, social media this weekend that uh, a couple of people he's worked with in the past, production-wise, producer-wise, are maybe working on a project. So maybe we're going to get um some unreleased you know um our version of a born in the usa box set or tracks two or you know something um now that you told me that i i want a western stars box set of those 30 (laughs) unreleased songs right 
Yeah, it's quite interesting. I was listening to another podcast the other week, actually, None But The Brave, which you're probably aware of yes. or your listeners are aware of. And mm -hmm. um, one of the episodes was if we could get let loose into the, the vault for one day and release what we want, what would we do? Great episode. Yeah, fantastic. Um, effectively, what they were saying was, if it's there, we're putting it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that may happen someday, but there's got to be some some great material out there and everybody has their favorite eras and their favorite albums but um I i'm in agreement i think as long as they don't dilute um the releases by putting too many out i think the nugs releases are fantastic because you can dip in and dip out but yeah i do too with yeah with the studio ones i think i don't want to see too much come out because you still want to have that air of mystery and the anticipation yes. of the future releases for me yeah because i mean look dylan just put out a unreleased song this weekend as we're recording this this 17 minute epic about yeah, the assassination yeah. of kennedy and you're like where where yeah. did that come from you know how <laughs> did you sit on that for that long uh, so well certainly it wasn't gonna get it wasn't gonna get radio play was it 17 no, minutes <laughs> no it wasn't it wasn't ever going to get radio play uh yeah. um okay so jeff what question have I not asked you that I should have? Oh, gosh. I, I feel we might even run to a second episode if we had to. But okay. I think one, th one thing I, I always like to play with is um, if I was in a time machine and could go back to any era or any tour, what concert, what one concert would I like to have a front row ticket for and be there? And, oh, that um, is a great question. I yeah. think you've thought of – now, I've often said – um, that when, you know, my other fandom is Doctor Who, um, mm -hmm. and, and they, they always joke about where would you go in the TARDIS? And I go, yeah, every Bruce Springsteen show ever. I mean, that's yeah. all I would do. I would just, me and the doctor would just go to, you know, um, and it's, I laugh because way back in October of last year, uh, Daniel Holbrook joined me. Mm -hmm. And he told the story that he, in July 1975, he saw Bruce, like, in um, in D.C. Okay. And he, in fact, in the episode, he talked about he turned to his girlfriend at the time and said, remember this night, we're never going to see Bruce and the band this close with this few people and this cheap again. And that was probably the week before or the week after the bottom line concerts, yes. wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. And so, and so as I'm talking to him, he shares, though, that his regret is there were so many shows in 71, 72, 73 that he missed because he didn't know who he was. Okay. And I um, – there's a saying here um, it, with American football, when you miss an extra point – that you you chase that point the rest of the game like it always ends up sh yeah. being important yeah, um, get it. yeah i think as springsteen fans we're always chasing the shows we hadn't seen and yeah. even this like i did not see him till 2002 so okay. you think of all the shows i've missed the original river tour yeah the yeah. the the how great would it have been the 99 reunion tour to kind of the uh -huh. greatest hits this things you know i i didn't go um 
you know, I, I didn't see any of the Ghost of Tom Jones, just over and over and over the shows, you know, sure. with the other band. And here's a guy that's seen him as early as 75 and has yeah. that same feeling. I wish I could have seen more. So yeah. I, I think that's a among fandom, we are passionate, a.k.a. greedy, that we just one more show. Just, just, just yeah. I could have gotten. So my long thing is what – did you knock it down to two or three that you would yeah. go see? Yeah. It, it would definitely be um... – between the Born to Run and Darkness tour. So, for example, if you look, I would have loved to be near the bottom line in 75, for sure, because that's sure. one of the first bootlegs I ever listened to. Um, I love all the small gig, the Roxy, the Agora 78 FM broadcast, so to be in any of those two would have been great. Um, but if I was to plump for one, uh, the 76-77 lawsuit chicken scratch tour, um, he finished off in Boston Music Hall March 77, and I think he did four or five nights there. And if you ever listen to Instant on 57th Street recorded live, I think it's the B-side of the War 12-inch single. That's taken from that concert. And I've gone back and listened to tapes of those concerts. And by this time, you know, the, these guys have been playing in a very pent-up, frustrated way, waiting for the lawsuit to be resolved, a lot of anger. He's playing It's My Life, Action in the Streets, Something in yeah. the Night's coming out, Don't Look Back started to surface as well so we were previewing at that time um a very pent-up frustrated angry bruce with a lot of energy wanting to get out there and record and tour properly with new material but he was showcasing some new stuff and the latter half of that tour as well he was playing with the miami horns mm. um so i would have i would plump for boston music hall march 77 i think that would have been pretty special yeah that I can see that. I can see that yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, all right. So, yes, we are going to have you back on again. This is, I, I can already tell, um, this is, <laughs> there's too much more to talk about. Uh, yeah. Before I let you go, though, um, any final thoughts before we get to the Mary question? I, th I think for me, um, I just feel blessed that, you know, from Mark and introducing me through to Bruce in 1979 as a 17, 18-year-old. Here I am, and I'm 60 next year, and I'm still listening to his music as keenly as ever. Um, he's been part of my life, most of my life, certainly all my adult life, and that's great. Um, so I certainly tip my cap to, to Bruce and his music. But I think what's as important is the friends that I've made along the way on the road, you know, uh, I've mentioned Dan French already and we have, um, and many other people as well who I've known as, as long as Dan. And I know Dan has told the story before about the, the, the infamous trip to Slane in 20, uh, sorry, in 1985 when we had 16 of us on two minibuses. I'm still in touch with half of those guys 35 years later on, you know, and so it's the community and the friendship that goes with the music, which is important to me as well. So, um, yeah. Um, well said, it, you know, we think about this, it's, um, I have, I have made a lot of friends through this podcast and people that, um, I feel I know, um, yeah. you know, and, um, and, and there is that bonding, of 
Bruce friendship. And, um, and, you know, we have, we have our share of jerks on fandom. There's every group does, but overall, most of us, um, seem to be pretty good people and people that I enjoy spending time with. Yeah. Uh, All right. So, um, Jay Armstrong is an honors English teacher. For those of you, just in case this is your first episode, um, he is a, um, honors English teacher in the Philadelphia area. He, um, every semester he takes two days and they break down the song Thunder Road and they true it, they view it as an epic poem. Um, they compare it to, uh, Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. They go through all the imagery and the different, what the words could represent and they debate all this in the, um, poem and then he asks the question does mary get in the car so uh jeff that is your question does mary get in the car yeah she's got to do she's got to get in the car and i thought you were going to ask me does her dress wave or sway <laughs> well i actually created a t-shirt that says uh the question isn't if the dress sways or waves it's does she get in the car I actually sell a T-shirt on that on my website. <laughs> so, well, wouldn't she be foolish not to get in the car? Um, I think so, but the argument that the people who say no is that um, she's too afraid to make that choice. That the fear of the unknown stops her. And she stays where she's at, even though she's unhappy because of that. Now, um, I'm not – and I – my answer, because I'm a optimist and a romantic, is yes, she gets in the car. Of course she gets in the car. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I always find it interesting. And fair enough people um, make a very wonderful argument that, no, she doesn't get in the car. And she – um, she later, you know, maybe regrets it or she finds something else. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because it's, do we embroil ourselves with the character of Murray ourselves and think what she would do? Or do we actually choose what we would do ourselves? And like you, I'm more of an optimist and I think, do you know what? Why would you not get in the car? Yeah. Um, I had a guest just recently, and gosh, I need to look up who this was because I mentioned this every time. Um, he said that Moonlight Motel is the ultimate um, sequel to Thunder Road, that yeah. Mary does get in the car. They go move to California, and they had a life together, and now then um, he is mourning her loss in Moonlight Motel. Yeah, I can see that. And you do realize as well, if uh, you do host that dinner party with Bruce around your table, you've got your first two questions you can ask him. Yeah, we do. Yes, we do. Um, (laughs) Exactly. All right. So here is the – this has been great. Jeff, if someone wants to reach you, how can they? Yeah, um, social media, Twitter, uh, Jeff IQ, J-E-F-F-I-Q, Facebook, uh, Jeff Matthews, uh, J-E-F-F, and then two T's in Matthews. Um, you drill down, you should find me pretty easily. And then if you want to find me on Instabrag, um, JDMAT1. All right. 
Uh, all right, so hang tight while I do a little business. Um, I'd love for you to join me on the podcast and share your Springsteen stories. Um, it's easy. All you got to do is reach out to me. My email address is setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is on Twitter at setlustingbruce. Uh, you can go to our website, uh, setlustingbruce.com, and from there you can um, find our Patreon page. If you want to kick a couple of bucks toward us, you have our website where you can order T-shirts and mugs, and there is a link to past episodes as well as blogs and fellow Springsteen podcasters that you should check out. Um, Jeff, I hope you and yours are staying very safe during this time. Yeah, you too, Jesse. It is, um, it's a scary time, and uh, we just, we need to take care of our own. I know that he's, <laughs> when Bruce sings that, he's being a little ironic, but I think in this case, this truly is what we need to do. And so yeah. I thank you so much. I've had a blast. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me, Jesse. All right. Well, everyone, please take care of yourselves. Be good to each other. And uh, we will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, that listening Bruce. Set Lessing Bruce is part of the Southgate Media Podcast Group. The theme for Set Lessing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.